Tip Today with Fran Curry. With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. Time now for our global politics segment and uh, delighted to be joined in the studio as usual by Thomas Conway. Good morning to you, Thomas. Good morning, Fran. And good uh, to chat to you today. We're going to start off by talking about uh, Africa because, uh, as you say yourself, everybody wants to be friends with uh, the African countries these days. What's what's happening? Yeah, everybody wants to be friends with Africa and we now have over 1.4 billion people living on the African continent, so a huge population We know it's home to vast swathes of natural resources, minerals and and what they call rare earth materials, things like nickel and cobalt and things like that. But it's also becoming increasingly significant from a geopolitical perspective. China has invested hugely in the continent. But last week, a story which caught my eye, the White House hosted what's known as the EU-Africa Leaders' Summit. So it invited the heads of several African countries to come and speak, some remotely, uh, some arrived in person. And it's, I suppose, further evidence of the way in which Joe Biden is trying to, to woo Africa. He sees it as, you know, extremely significant. He's trying to consolidate friendships, bolster relations between the two countries. And he's particularly eager to advance America's agenda because... He is wary of the threat which China and to a slightly lesser extent Russia mm. poses. Uh, both both China and Russia, as I say, China invested hugely in the country. Russia also has a presence. You know, I was reading through it. A lot of the African countries have been, could we say, neutral in terms of the war in Ukraine. 17 of them refused to back a, a UN declaration condemning mm. the invasion. So we see Putin has kind of maybe built a a coalition of support among certain African nations in respect of the war. And China has kind of done similarly. It's invested huge huge amounts of capital and cash into the continent. And I think America is only really waking up to this right now. Some of the African countries are smaller countries, uh, of course, and uh, they've got leaders that we probably wouldn't recognise their names. Yeah, and that's the thing. You know, you, you have the likes of Mozambique's Philip Inwuzi, uh, Somalia's Sheikh Mohamud, and uh, Paul Kagame, the Rwandan leader. Again, people not probably going to be able to identify who these people are, but they are significant. And the fact that they are speaking at these summits is kind of indicative of how important Africa is becoming. All that said, trade with the African continent, American trade with the African continent accounts for just 1% of America's overall foreign trade, which is incredible. And most of that is petroleum, i.e. oil and gas, from the lights of Nigeria, Nigeria and Angola. So, you know, only a fraction uh, of their overall trade, which I found astonishing. The US, though, as I say, is eager to advance ties with smaller African nations. If we look at the African continent as a whole, South Africa, the wealthiest country, followed by the likes of Algeria and Morocco. Morocco had that fantastic run in the World Cup. Uh, you know, And it is a country which is relatively stable in terms of, it, since the Arab Spring, it, uh, Arab Spring, it has kind of retained its democratic credentials, yes. should we say. A lot of countries... 
are very, very different. They are not democratic. They are authoritarian regimes and they are home, it has to be said, to lots of political instability, civil conflict, corruption. Yes. And and while America might be courting these countries, I mean, what 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 is the feeling backwards on that? I mean, how, how do they feel about America? Well, you see, this is the thing, and they have remained, I think, a little bit ambiguous. I think a lot of the African countries want to keep their options open, if you know what I mean. Yes. They see that China has invested huge amounts of money into their country. A lot of them have actually fallen into a debt trap. Uh, what's known as a debt trap with China. In, in other words, they owe huge amounts of cash and capital to the Chinese government because of the investment. They're happy to take the investment. Why wouldn't they? They need all the money and the infrastructural development that they can get. But at the same time, they are beholden to them. Mm. It, it, well, what about Europe, uh, where Africa is concerned? But Because now we've our dependence on Russia I mean we've hopefully we've learned our lesson on that I mean are they not looking to Africa as well? well we are to a certain extent the EU has to a certain extent and has tried to forge relations with Africa but it is slightly worrying because we talked previously in the show about kind of a geopolitical shift that the fulcrum of the global economy was kind of shifting towards the east it's becoming a battle of two superpowers America and China and then you've other emerging countries and continents like India and Africa and Europe is becoming somewhat peripheral and from what I can gather here Europe kind of needs to get its act together with Africa I mean recently we had the French withdrawing a peacekeeping presence across the Sahel region the Sahel region is that area below the Sahara Desert which is home to huge amounts of terrorism and terrorist conflict it's an incredibly volatile unstable region the EU would previously have had peacekeeping forces there, but we saw the French withdrew theirs quite recently. So I think there is a little bit of ambiguity in mm. terms of Europe's exact position in relation yes. to Africa. I suppose Europe's uh, history in Af Africa wouldn't be illustrious either, you know, so maybe there's shades of that still there. Well, that, that's, the, that's the very thing. And of course, yeah. we saw World Cup semi-final, France and Morocco. France, a former colonizer yeah. of Morocco, and a lot of the European countries would have been colonial powers and presided over atrocities in their awful countries. Atrocities. Awful, awful, awful atrocities. Awful, awful atrocities. Belgium in particular and yeah. the Congo. So, you know, the sentiment there the attitude of African countries, you know, could not be described as friendly. That's for sure. Let's move to uh, Venezuela then, because uh, we spoke about this, didn't we, uh, about uh, Venezuela? We did. We've spoken, we've spoken a little bit about it before. And people will remember a couple of years ago, there was so much controversy about v Venezuela. Nicolas Maduro, the left-wing dictator, he took power from, took over from Hugo Chavez back in 2013 and presided over what has been kind of disastrous economic and political policies to the extent that it led to that appalling refugee crisis a couple of years ago. We then had the emergence of Juan Guaido, which was uh, one of the, I suppose, the rebellious leaders mm. against the Maduro regime. And it has struck me recently, I was reading a story, he has effectively disappeared from the political circle. He's still there. Uh, he's still recognised by a number of countries as the de facto leader of mm. the country, but his authority has waned significantly. 
Meanwhile, Maduro's status on the global stage, anyway, has actually been enhanced. He attended the COP27 summit in Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt recently, met on the sidelines of that summit with French President Emmanuel Macron, and Macron addressed him as leader, which I think was as Venezuela leader. Do they not recognise him as Te- leader? Technically, they don't. Technically, they don't. And, and that was the funny thing. But I think there is now an acceptance that a little bit like the Middle East, a little bit like countries like Saudi Arabia and that, Venezuela is back in demand. Why is that? Because they have huge, vast oil reserves. They sit on 20% of the world's proven oil reserves. So technically, they're the most oil-rich Oil rich country on the planet, or should I say, oil abundant country on the planet. Mm. They don't, uh, they have failed well, are, to. Exploit. Are they making a bags of how they. Oh, how they, they have just, ter- you know, a lesson in how not to exploit natural resources is, is how I would describe it. Because they have all this oil wealth, all this mineral wealth, yet they have failed to exploit and harness it. The, the state oil company has been an absolute disaster. And to give you an idea of just how unproductive the company is, at the height of the kind of Chavez era, when Venezuela was doing relatively well, average annual oil output was about 3 million barrels a day, which is high. Right now, it's around 650,000. So more than two-thirds of a decrease. That is just emblematic of how how disastrous the company has become and how disastrous the government policy has become. And then, of course, we have Western nations demanding that, uh, that Venezuela become more transparent and liberal in terms of its governance structure. The thing is, that doesn't really seem to be the case. The, the, the f- curious thing which I found, Nicolas Maduro's uh, approval rating is currently at 26%, so it's not high. Yet he's still only a fraction lower than the most popular opposition figure, which is a guy called Manuel Rosales. Guaido doesn't even really feature. Mr. Guaido is polling at 16%. So Venezuela might be back on the map, but its economic, its political, its fiscal problems remain very heavily entrenched. Um, One of our listeners chiming in with what we were saying, really, Thomson, saying the reason why up-and-coming African countries are dealing with Russia and China is partly the horrendous legacy left uh, on the African continent by France, the UK, Belgium and the US with a century of slavery. And this person also goes on to say, as for Venezuela... um, they were basically cast out because they wouldn't take orders from the United States or sell its oil in US dollars and stuff. But certainly where where the um, legacy of Europe is concerned, it's, it's still very much there. Yeah, appalling atrocities perpetrated by many European countries. I mean, we spoke just there off air about Belgium and yeah. King Leopold. Oh my God. So you can understand it. I mean, it doesn't bear thinking about, really. Yeah. You can understand why there would be that kind of negative sentiment there Absolutely. towards Europe. Was, was that for the rubber fields in, in Congo, was it? Was I think so. I, I think so. Was. And again, we go back to the point, Africa, full of these resources and economic yeah. potential, yet has failed to harness and exploit it. Incredible. Now, uh, Latin America, let's move there. Um, Cocaine conundrum at the moment, uh, Thomas. What is that exactly? Yeah, this was was a very interesting story The Economist ran. Now, I should say first, I'm not advocating the legalisation of cocaine. We, We should say at the outset that it is a terribly dangerous stimulant drug wreaking havoc in communities across Ireland as well. But I suppose particularly in the lights of Latin America. We know at this stage that Latin America is not really a safe place. The the region has been afflicted by drug-related gang violence, political instability. few statistics, the murder rate in Colombia, three times that of the United States. Wow. 
in Mexico it's four times as high. We mentioned on the programme before an average of 25 people disappear per day in Mexico and most of that is related to drug or is down to drug related gang warfare. So you know we have a remarkably grim situation there and efforts to kind of address the problem have been largely unsuccessful. But in recent weeks and months a couple of politicians, a couple of senior politicians, the likes of Gustavo Petro of Colombia and the former, now former Peruvian uh, Prime Minister Pedro, Pedro Castillo, have openly called for the decriminalisation of cocoa leaf production. What that effect is decriminalising the consumption of cocaine. Right. So, so all the gangs and all of these people involved then would be what? Would they be redundant in some ways? Well, this is, I suppose, the hope. This is the aspiration. And we have to look at it, I suppose, the countries involved. So most of the world's cocaine is manufactured in three countries. Bolivia accounts for 26%, Peru 13.5%, and of course, Colombia, a staggering 61% of all cocaine cultivated globally. And so, you know, Pablo Escobar may be dead and he's gone. But I mean, the cocaine industry is is thriving, is flourishing even. Global efforts to subdue cocaine production have been, as I say, largely unsuccessful. The US has ploughed as much as $10 billion into Colombia to suppress production. It has paid people to local police forces to spray the cocoa bushes and yank them up by hand. But as soon as they, as soon as they have, I suppose, raised one to the ground, another one pops up on another hillside. Right, because it's so profitable. Because it's so profitable. Yeah. Because the industry is so lucrative, and because the drug lords are just so powerful. So, as I say, the Economist had this piece suggesting that legalisation of the drug would actually render it less dangerous. And I suppose it's it's kind of similar in certain ways to the marijuana debate in this country. Yeah. You know, there's, there's echoes of that. But if cocaine were to be fully legalised, it, it would allow the drug to be produced as a strictly regulated, highly taxed product, somewhat like whiskey or cigars. Now, another problem it would address, it would ensure because it would be regulated, it would be potentially less toxic because a lot of the deaths which we're seeing from cocaine now is because it's mixed with another other illicit substances, yes. the likes mm. of fentanyl. Uh, Cocaine-related deaths in America have risen fivefold since 2010 and that's primarily because the gangs have been cutting it with fentanyl and that can prove lethal. So the argument really goes that proper legalisation would disempower the gangs but it's worth remembering, as I've said, cocaine is hugely addictive and it can be extremely dangerous. It devastates lives in this country around the world. So a big question yeah. there for policymakers. Absolutely, and you make the point yourself, 50 years ago Nixon uh, had his, his war on drugs. Th and, this uh, is the amazing thing, and yeah. since that war on drugs, since he launched that campaign, I mean, cocaine production and cocaine smuggling has skyrocketed. Uh, you know, so it has been kind of unsuccessful to say the to, least to say the very least indeed what should we look out for in the the weeks to come do you think thomas well obviously you know people are people are getting their christmas turkeys ready and looking forward to christmas but we have to remember at the forefront of our minds that the war in ukraine is still is still trundling on snow carpet in kiev and vladimir putin and vladimir zelensky on two completely different pages we had 
President Zelensky in the past week floating the idea of peacetime arriving in 2023. Yes. Meanwhile, we have these rumours that Russia is preparing to launch a new offensive in the, in the new year. So completely divergent attitudes. I mean, support has remained stable for Ukraine across Europe, which is good to see despite the energy crisis. But it is a, it's an incredibly volatile situation. And at present, both sides remain gridlocked. There seems to be no real end in sight. There's no real diplomatic offer. And uh, is it today Putin is going to Belarus? He is. He's trying to uh, to woo Lukashenko, the Belarusian leader, uh, wants more support for the war from there. One of the few allies, of course, of Russia, Belarus. So very difficult to know how it will play out. Mm, For sure. And what about Hungary and the EU? Is there a bit of argy-bargy? Yeah, I decided just to reference this story because it's emblematic. I mean, Hungary and the EU constantly fighting, constantly at loggerheads on various issues. The latest conflagration between the two is uh, on the rather controversial issue of transgender rights. So the Czech EU presidency wrote to members of the European Union a couple of weeks ago uh, complaining that effectively the EU's leadership on gender-related issues was being undermined by Hungary. Surprise, surprise. So the EU is pushing to introduce more inclusive language, the Hungary doesn't want this. Uh, Viktor Orban is sternly against it. He, of course, strong conservative kind of Christian sure. principles yeah. there. So another another episode of kind of conflict between Hungary and the EU. It's nothing new. And look, Viktor Orban isn't going to be going anywhere anytime soon. So we can expect more of these little kind of mini conflagrations. I think so indeed. And starvation in South uh, Sudan. Yeah, probably a sour note to finish on, but one that needs to be highlighted. Obviously, we talked about Africa at the top of the programme. South Sudan is a nation, it was, only disco- or it was only founded in 2011, one of the youngest nations on the planet, but it has been beset by conflict and food insecurity, and the country is now on the brink of famine. So, you know, we have these African nations filled with tales of violence, corruption and food insecurity, and South Sudan it offers an example of just that. It has an incredibly young population, 12.5 million in total. It's technically the youngest state in the world, but currently a majority of its population are at risk of, of starvation. It needs international assistance. It needs international help. Since its foundation, it has failed to get off the ground, really, as a country. And I think the prospects, the future prospects there remain bleak unless urgent intervention is, is provided. Do you find it amazing that there's very little talk of starvation next to nothing next to nothing in the media you know and and I'm not blaming the media you know and politicians are occupied by their own issues but again this is a you know a familiar tale in Africa I think people have almost been immunised to these stories at this point but I think it's just important much like the war in Ukraine that we keep a focus on them all right, Thomas, really good to see you as always. A happy Christmas to you. And many happy returns to you, Frank. Thanks very much indeed. Uh, just some breaking news for you. Uh, Electric Ireland is to give all customers a credit to the state-owned Electric Ireland. Um, is to forego profit from its residential electricity business in the coming year and give customers a credit payment. It amounts to some rare good news indeed for hard-pressed uh, householders who have been hit with a succession of double-digit price rises this year. And Electric Ireland said a €50 Euro credit will be applied to each 
each existing residential electricity customer. It's not exactly uh, clear at this point when the credit will be given, but it is expected to be very soon. So there's some good news. Don Nook to August and Olds Chuck. Tip today with Fran Curry With Slattery's Garage, puck on. You can't beat experience. With over 50 years maintaining Peugeot cars and vans, we like to call ourselves the experts. Call Slattery's Garage for a free vehicle health check today. 067 24111 or slatterysgarage.ie. 